I really believe technical founders should learn how to sell. Um, I think they'll have oftentimes, because they know the product so well, they can develop that skill, they'll be one of the best salesmen at the very beginning. And then they'll understand the importance of, of selling. Um, I think in Silicon Valley for a long time, this may not be the case now, but people just thought if you had a good product, it would sell itself. And that's just not the case anymore. Silicon Valley, a place where passionate entrepreneurs and savvy investors have created more wealth and innovation than ever before seen on this planet. There's so much mythology surrounding this tiny yet influential place that it can be hard to tell fiction from fact. I'm George Soto, and this is Startups Unedited. Hey everyone, this is George Soto, and you're watching Startups Unedited, the documentary series that gets real and goes super deep with some of the top players in the startup community. In this episode, we sit down and interview my good friend Jason Vargas of Datanize to really get his perspective on what it's like to be at a startup as an early stage salesperson. Check it out. Jay, thanks for doing this. Yeah, dude. I appreciate you taking the time. We've been talking to founders, investors, and other in, others in the ecosystem, uh, just really trying to figure out like what is really startup culture here in uh, San Francisco all about. Yeah. Why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself? You know, how'd you get into startups? Because you're yeah. you've been a miserable startup founder <laughs> yourself. Um, I I got into tech by way of sales. Um. I think just naturally being in Silicon Valley, you kind of fall into it. Obviously, there's a huge job market for people who want to get into tech. Um, and, you know, just like you, I started selling books door to door. And when you do that, you're basically running your own business and you're also learning how to sell. And um, just ha I've always had that drive to want to just be an entrepreneur, basically. So, um, being in Silicon Valley for school, and then getting getting involved with sales and all that kind of stuff, I kind of naturally fell into the, the, the tech space. Okay. It really fascinated me. I really love how fast things move. Sometimes it probably moves a little too fast, um, but I overall like it. Just I really love the space and, and what it has to offer. So. What was your first like project that you uh, outside of selling books that you would consider entrepreneurial, where you you know came up with the idea and then you tried it out? Yeah. Um, so I kind of got into web development when I was in college, and so I started uh, with a friend of mine. I started like a little creative agency and just to see where we can take it, right. and uh, we actually did pretty well. Um, well, we did well at the very beginning, <laughs> and then um, there's a lot of things about running a business that you don't necessarily realize when you first start. So, um, especially, and what would be some of those things? Well, for starters, you know, when you close a deal for X amount. Um, and you're doing more like web or, or mobile development, there's a lot of costs involved like that. And also managing clients' expectations, managing the project. So, you know, you can't go over budget on certain things. And when you have a client that wants to revise a design over and over and over and over again, you have to set the expectations of like, hey, we can't do this so many times because you're running out of budget. Um, and at the time, uh, my manager who was responsible for the development side, I was responsible for the business side, uh, he wasn't managing that, and we we got in a, a bit of trouble there, and so which looked, happens? Yeah, right? yeah. So like, where it looked like we made a lot of money, um, we we did bring in a lot of business. Uh, the cash flow just wasn't there, and uh, we weren't really able to manage kind of that aspect. And 
cash flow is kind of king. Without cash, um, things kind of went went south. Went so south, yeah. we ended up uh, closing that down, and I separated myself from him. So, so you've been at Data Knives now, like since the beginning. You were what number four? Yeah. So it was uh, Ben and Ilya, and then they brought on John and myself to come in and, and help. What I love about that is you had a technical CEO yeah. who could write code and build the original product yeah. that still codes today. Uh, tries not to, but okay. but sometimes he'll lend a hand. Got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then you had three non-technical folks. Yeah, it was actually really cool. So being a part of Data Nice, what I loved about it is you had like you know Ily, who was a, a technical founder, but he also has a degree from Baptist University. He has an MBA. Right, and then when he first started, he was selling the product himself. So it was great to have a founder who was technical but really understood the importance of selling. And I think that in itself is what has kind of formed the culture that we have today, and has helped us be successful. Because when you have a technical founder that understands sales, he's willing to give salespeople whatever they need to be successful. And so, um, literally, you know, it was Ben, John, myself, and Ilya. We we're all selling at the beginning. Uh, we brought in Lindsay and Ilya stopped selling. We brought in another engineer, but we kept bringing these non-technical people in. Yeah. Um, and I think because of that, we're able to bootstrap the company to where we are today. Yeah. So, so just in terms of, you know, data nice and the investment that you took, I mean, you know, some would think that a $2 million investment is pretty substantial. Yeah, I think it, at first it is, I think we kind of get, Jaded here in Silicon Valley, where you know ten million dollars or five million dollars is an okay round, uh, and you can see companies really burn through that. Um, an awesome thing that I think was really, which is really a great part of our culture, is kind of that bootstrap mentality because we we scale the company with no money up to a million dollars in revenue, so we actually had real money, and it was, but it was really hard to get there, but we were able to do it and. Um, after that, we decided to raise, raise a, a seed round because we said, hey, we actually have something of value here. We brought value to the marketplace, we proved a concept, and now we said, okay, well, great, let's scale this. And I think a lot of companies were like, cool, we have a good idea, let's get some money to see if we can actually you know, scale this thing or bring some value to the market. And we kind of had a different mentality. We first wanted to see, is there something that, here that, that has value for others and can help other people? and can you know? Can it help the marketplace? And when we saw that it did, by way of the revenue, I think, I think revenue is always a great um, scoreboard to obviously show so how well you're your doing. Your status, right? how you're doing, yeah, your performance. Yeah, and um, I think uh, once we saw that, you know, hey, we did pretty well here, now let's scale it faster. And so that's why we, we did a little injection of, ca of cash, cash there. And yeah. it's worked out well. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we still, I mean, we haven't really touched that money, to be yeah. honest, it's still there. Um, which just goes to show that the bootstrappers mentality is still present. Yeah. And we're able to scale a company to 65 people and hoping to scale it to 100 by the end of the year. You know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, but again, that's all inside of like keeping a bootstrappers mentality, living off of real revenue. And so it's like, hey, we're a real business. <laughs> so, you know, if, if the industry does take a, a downward turn, um, then for us, we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. Now that you've been working with a successful startup founder you joined you know when you were four people now you've scaled it to 64 you said 65 65 now what are some of the attributes that you see a successful startup founder possess the biggest thing that 
I really appreciate about Ilya and Ben, um, particularly Ilya because you know it, it is his brainchild, is his ability to step back and let go. Um, I've been really blown away by that. Where he, where I used to go and ask permission for things. Oh, hey Ilya, I want to do this. Is this okay? And had to get approval. Um, nowadays, um, I don't have to do that, and it took me understanding that by him saying, hey Jason, like that, that's up to you, Like I, I shouldn't be managing that stuff anymore. I think that's a very strong attribute when a CEO can actually step back and trust their people. And because he's able to do that, that gives me the freedom and creativity to go about my job the way I think it should go. Because you know he wants everyone who has their expertise to do their job, right? He's not gonna have expertise in marketing or everything sales or things like that. And so um, that's probably one of the biggest attributes a, a founder could have, is the ability to start focusing more on a high level strategic um, place and be able to trust the people that they put in place at the company. And Ilya's done an awesome job at that. Awesome. Yeah. So we've been also talking to founders about what it means like to be a founder a CEO, you know, someone who's bootstrapping something or taking the idea from an idea to something that's like at least usable or sellable, right? Yeah. What is that experience like? You've been part of so many of these experiences. Um, I'm sure you probably hear, hear this a lot and it's probably a common thing, but man, it's, it's really hard. Um, it's really hard. <laughs> I, I never realized it would be like this hard from my position, right? And I know I've been there early on, but from Ilya's standpoint, I can only imagine that the pressure is even greater than that, right? Um, but yeah, you're you're always in a place, you know. If if my experience is anything like Ilya's, which I can imagine it is, you know, there, there are a lot of times where I have no clue what the heck I'm doing, um, and I think that's going to be a, pretty common across a lot of people. And it's just a matter of constantly learning and learning as fast as you can. I think you bring a, a skill set, a natural skill set already. But, but yeah, I mean, there are moments where it's like, you know something and you're doing a great job and then you kind of hit this wall and you plateau, right? And then there's like opportunities for you to learn. And, but in those moments when you're hitting the, the wall, you start, all the self-doubt kicks in. Um, you don't believe in yourself. You're like, oh, I'm not the right person for the job. Like, oh God, what am I doing? I'm gonna fail. And then you kind of take a step back, breathe, and ask, okay, well, what, what, what is there to accomplish? What do I have to do? And then that's, like for me anyway, I know Ilya does this as well, but for me, that's where I start asking a lot of questions from people that I admire in the, in the industry or have a lot of respect for. And I go in the zone of like learning like a child does where I just ask, well, how do you do this? Well, why? Well, why? Well, how come? Well, why? And um, so I kind of took on the mentality and then I'll kind of break through that, that, plat that, that ceiling. And then I'll come up to another one, right? I have all the success and like cool things are running smooth and then I'll hit another one. And then it's, it's like the same thing. Right? It's like when I start self-doubting myself, like, oh, this is not going to work for me, or maybe I'm not the right person, all, the, all these people think things, you know, they're way smarter than me, and they think things that I never thought of before. So, again, it's like a, a re repetitive, I can't, I can't repetitive, talk about it. repetitive yeah. thank you, it's a repetitive process of <clears throat> uh, successes and breakdowns all the time. But I think th now that I know that that's the case when I hit these plateaus, uh, I'm okay with it. And where I used to freak out, I don't anymore. Because now for me, it's like, okay, well, that's my signal that, that I'm hitting a plateau and there's an opportunity for me to learn. So that's actually what I'm doing right now is I reached out to a lot of people I admire in the space and I said, hey, this is what I'm bumping up against. Would you consider being like a mentor to me? And so I picked uh, four specific people 
um, just because uh, they think very differently than most people in Silicon Valley do, and they've had a lot of success. And so um, that's kind of my, that's my process. And so I have seen Ily do that as well in Ben, where he now has an advisor and mentor. So you just said something I thought was interesting, how you know some of these mentors think differently mm-hmm. than here in Silicon Valley. Yep. What does that mean? So um, there's a lot of groupthink in Silicon Valley, and there's a lot of that inside of sales as well. Um, now, there's a lot of great things that come out of it. Don't get me wrong. Like I will read everything I can read on every single sales blog possible, but you start to see this repetitive nature, right? And I'm not interested in that. Uh, where I'll take and I'll listen to a point. Um, I also want to avoid the groupthink. Uh, I've noticed people that don't live in Silicon Valley that are in the sales space, their thinking is totally different. They don't get sucked into like the minutiae that can come out of, uh, out of uh, even just like the sales community here. Um, and so that was really important for me to start looking for mentors that, that one, maybe aren't even in Silicon Valley, um, but think very differently. Um, and I don't want to bring any kind of group think into what I'm trying to do. Um, and so that's kind of, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of the, the mindset or my frame of mind that I'm trying to uh, put my sound fit into. And even like reading things that are outside of Silicon Valley in terms of sales. Because um, I think a lot of people who are knowledgeable in sales that aren't necessarily in tech have a lot to offer. And how do we take those concepts and apply it at Data Nice or in sales? Yeah, I mean, that was, I think, one of the things that we were doing with sales for startups back in you know 2011 yeah. and yeah. if you remember there wasn't a sales tech community there yeah. wasn't a sales community here there were a couple guys who were doing some things but it's certainly nothing uh, like it is today and I think <clears throat> my thought process was that we were taking things that we had learned outside of technology yeah. and bringing those yeah. philosophies uh, into technology and I think at least I remember that's what we were trying to do with with sales for startups, and so that makes a lot of sense to me to be able to get kind of a different perspective on stuff. You'll get a different perspective on sales, specifically, um, and not just sales technology, or just not not just SaaS sales, and and you know SDRs and all, you know all the the kind of the yeah. the standard stuff. You built the outbound sales process at Datanize. How did that evolve starting from, you know, basically nothing to what it is today? Like, how did you actually do that? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's still changing. It's got, always going to be changing. Um, we're always going to be iterating on top of what we built. But uh, initially, I kind of went about doing the job myself. I think it was important. Uh, I think, I forget who says it. Maybe it's Jason Limkin who says, uh, nail it before you scale it. Mm-hmm. I think that came from him. Um, and so we kind of uh, took hold of that and, and we kind of live by that when we're building on new processes. So for me, I wanted to nail the process first myself. Truly understand what, 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 what is successful, why is it successful, and then be able to document that in the form of a playbook, and then be able to teach that to, to the next person. Um, and so that's what I initially did. Found some, I found success, repeatable, repeatable success, I did it over and over again. And then I went to Ilian Ben and said, okay, here's the process that I've built so far, and these are the results I've done like week over week, month over month. So they said, okay, great, let's bring in another SDR. So we brought an SDR in from Gigia, who he was our top SDR, and had a lot to offer as well, and I wanted him to take the process that I built and then to, to add on top of it and improve it. And so he, he took my model, 
he found success and then he started adding on top of that and made it even better. And we said, awesome, let's add another person. And then we did the same thing. Here's our process, add to it. And so we've kind of always um, listened to the SDRs and so the ones that are like boots on the ground, the ear, to, ear, to, ear to the ground kind of thing. And so they're able to tell us what works, what still works and what doesn't and what, needs, what we need to iterate. And so um, that's kind of the same thing that we're doing now. Uh, we've made a lot of changes in data management recently and so there's still a lot of things that we need to to uh, work on kind of um, honing up again from moving more towards we've always been like focusing on specific accounts but now we're moving up market um, we're focused on different personas instead of like VPs or just VPs of sales we're looking at sales ops people and marketing operations and that's a whole different persona a whole different messaging thing that comes with that and so there's a lot of things that we have to change uh, from a messaging standpoint but also a process standpoint, like how do you get into bigger accounts like enterprise accounts? And so there's a lot of changes and moving pieces right now. And it's a little more difficult to change things so quickly because there's more people. And so when it was just me, it's easy to change the process. But now we have to think about there's 14 people on the SDR team. And so making everything move and you know seamlessly is a little more difficult. But if you're a founder out there and you're trying to figure out how you should approach going to market or testing your product, seeing if anyone cares, what tips would you give uh, that founder? Um, honestly, I would take the approach that, that Ilya did. Um, you know, it, it, if they're a technical founder, right, and they have the ability to build something, um, I really get a lot of feedback from the marketplace. Um, Pete from Talent Ben, or who was at Talent Ben, they're building a new product, and. They have a, uh, a, a early customer advisory board. Mm -hmm. And so they've spent a, um, a lot of time getting feedback. Would a product like this be beneficial? And they got enough data where people said yes. And so now they're building it. And so now they're, they're taking time to send surveys. Hey, here are the initial features that we could build. Which ones would you absolutely love to do? Which ones should we not do? So they're getting all this feedback. Um, and I think that's awesome. Now, I think you can gather too much feedback and not build anything, and then you just burn through all your, your time or money or whatever the case might be. So I think it's a fi fine balance of like getting really information really quickly on is this valuable, what would you want to see, then executing and building it. Um, and then from there, I really believe techno founders should learn how to sell. Um, I think they'll have oftentimes, because they know the product so well, they can develop that skill, they'll be one of the best salesmen at the very beginning. And then they'll understand the importance of, of selling. Um, I think in Silicon Valley for a long time, this may not be the case now, but people just thought if you had a good product, it would sell itself. And that's just not the case anymore. So I think if a founder can really understand um, how to sell their product, um, that's kind of the process I would take. Get some valuable data behind whether some people would use it, build it, get some feedback, and then begin to sell on your own. So. Cool. You know, you talked a lot about like the psychology involved in sales. Can you unpack that for a second? Just tell us, you know, what does that even, what does that mean, and how do I prepare myself mentally uh, for startup sales? Yeah, but re rejection is probably one of the biggest things people are always fear fearful of, right? It, it impacts everywhere, from from dating life to, <laughs> to to whatever. People just don't like to hear the word no. Um, but oftentimes, what I've always taught is that if you look at sales like a series of of, it's a conversation, right? It's a series of conversations. Um, people can have conversations, right? Um, and if you bring a level of authenticity to your conversations, get that it's just a conversation, and that there's 
and this might sound weird, but there's nowhere to get to, right? Oftentimes when people think of sales, it's like, I gotta close George. How do I get to close George? The conversation then becomes about me and my agenda, and I have no interest in what it is that you're really dealing with, right? So um, I think if people can understand and learn to get in the world of the prospect, and if I really sat here and, and got like George, like what are you dealing with as, as, as a person or as a company, and was really truly interested in that, that opens up a whole world, right? And if you can have that in a context of like, you're just having a conversation about it, um, then I think, uh, I think selling becomes a lot easier. The other thing that I always think about is that um, people are always a yes in sales. And you gotta show them why they should be a yes to you. Because I've gone through deals where people have said no, and then they've turned around and then they've sold to, or they, they've purchased from a competitor, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you always gotta get that people are always a yes, um, but they have to, there has to be a reason why they're a yes to you. You know, just generally speaking, as you're, uh, you know, being that you're an, a serial entrepreneur, what's the hardest part of starting something? It's kind of two parts. So one thing, it's, it's just taking action. And I think what stops people from taking action is, is fear, right? They're incredibly fearful of being like mocked or ridiculed or being made fun of like, this is a bad idea, or, this is a stupid idea. Um, I think if people can overcome that stuff, uh, then I think they can be successful. And I think those that, people that are successful are the ones that don't care what other people think about them or care about the failure. And um, there's a really cool quote, I don't know where it comes from, I wish I do, but um, it says that uh, failure is only reserved reserved for those who are willing to play the game. Um, and if you're willing to play the game, you have to understand failure is a part of it, right? But if you also get and have a context that failure is only reserved for those who are willing to give it a shot and really play the game, that's pretty awesome. Everybody else who says, oh, I don't wanna fail, or like, or I failed, but never actually took action, that they, they didn't fail, they didn't even try, right? They're, they're, it's those people that are sitting in the stands watching people play the games that are going to be like the loudest talkers, right? Um, and so I think if you can kind of take that context and kind of run with it, then you can be very successful. Um, and I think that's something that you're incredibly good at. You're very good at executing and just taking... You don't give a shit what people think about you. <laughs> um, but I also think that's why you've been very successful what you do. So. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think success is relative too because, you know, yeah. I wake up in the morning every day and I go, man, I, I haven't even succeeded yet, you know? Yeah. And, that, and it's very interesting, right? You see people all the time in this community that are making a tremendous amount of money and have all the quote-unquote success. Totally, yeah. That, right? But then yeah. they're still unfulfilled. Yeah, uh, that's a very good point. I think you have to have what your idea of, of success is. Um, a lot of people equate success to a monetary value of some kind, um, and that really isn't successful, right? Um, I think if with my life, my life has been very successful. There's sometimes like, oh, I'm not successful because I don't have this or that. But if you look at everything from my family, my health, my career, my friends, uh, what I get to do every day of my life, I think I'm pretty successful, so. Yeah. Well, that's great that you've been able to like have that awareness of your situation. Speaking of awareness, how do you develop an awareness around, you know, being content or being fulfilled? You know, how, when you haven't been able to reach that, that pinnacle, and maybe that pinnacle is so massive, it's so crazy, 
like yeah. quote unquote crazy. Yeah. How do you how do you develop some some peace around? Um, one, uh, don't take yourself or things so seriously. Um, as morbid as it might sound, uh, our time here is very finite. Uh, we're all. What's inevitable is that we are all gonna die, right? And 50 years after you die, no one's probably gonna know what the heck you did or give a crap. So that in itself is very freeing, uh, in in a lot of ways. And so, um, I, I try and remind myself of that every day, right? Like, what's really important to me, um, and I'm trying to get caught in the minutia that that life kind of throws at you. Um, another thing I do is I try not to have life, life's focus just be all about me. Uh, the moment everything becomes about you, um, everything becomes magnified. And all your problems, all like whatever things get thrown at you seem so big and like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. If you can begin to focus on something that's bigger than you and focus on others, um, all that stuff starts to slowly disappear because your life is no longer about you. And I think um, you hear this a lot from, uh, I hear this a lot from my friends who like just had a child. Like, wow, my life is no longer about me and it's about the child, right? Like the focus is there and less on them. And I think if, uh, for those of us who aren't parents, um, if, we can, if we can practice doing that, getting that, hey, don't make life so much about me and, and be so significant, um, you can create a level of awareness that you didn't know was possible. And it brings a lot of peace as well, especially when you're in like the trenches of building a startup, right? Um, and just get, at the end of the day, it's all a game anyway and just have fun with the game. Don't take the game so seriously, just enjoy the process. About the stories that we create in our minds, yeah. about our problems, about the successes or lack of successes. What does that mean when someone creates a story in their mind? And maybe you can unpack that a bit for folks to understand. Yeah, um, which kind of goes to like the last question of, of how you not take yourself so seriously. Um, you gotta get as people, as human beings, um, we add a lot of meaning and significance to everything. Um, and that happens in our heads. So if something happens, say, say you know, Data and I's failed or tanks, whatever, right? In reality, all that happened is that Data and I's no longer exists, right? But what happens in my head is that, oh, I'm a failure, oh, I suck at this, I told you I wasn't the right one. Like your mind starts to interpret what happens, um, and it happens very quickly. And a lot, most people, if people just stopped for a second, they would hear that little voice in the head talking to them, right? It happens all the time. Like you just hear, you're, it, it doesn't stop. It keeps going and going and going. And it's, it's not a positive voice in your head. It's always a really negative voice in our head. And then we oftentimes believe it. And we believe that whatever that, that thing in our head says about us is true. And the fact is it's not, right? So if someone fails, that's their go-to right away is like, listen to what's, what they're saying to themselves in their head and then take that as that's truth. And that's, that's just not the reality of it. Um, and so I think if people can really start to understand and get aware of that, that little voice kind of chattering in their head all, all the time. Um, what was it that, that, that um, Southwestern used to call it? Um, Mr. and Mrs. Mediocrity. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's always it's always there, like chattering. It's like the good angel and and, and the devil, but oftentimes it's just the devil, right? Um, and I don't think people are aware of the fact that, that voice is kind of chatting all the time. And the more you can become aware that that that's there, the quicker you can catch it. And when you can catch it, you catch those thoughts and get like, hey, this is just a thought. It's actually not even real. It's just 
popped up in my head. That's not who I am, or it's not the reality of the situation. Um, when you can become more aware of that, then you can catch it, and you can say, cool, thanks for that thought, appreciate it, put it aside, and continue executing whatever it is you need to do to be successful. Um, I think people who get stuck in that, um, that's where you kind of see people spiral down. And every facet of life, not just inside of um, a startup. And I think most people can relate to it inside of a relationship. Something happens, in, like your girlfriend does something or says something, and you interpret it as like, oh my gosh, she doesn't love me, she doesn't care about me. Same thing inside of a startup. Something happens, and you say something about it, go down this rabbit hole that's not going to lead you anywhere but being depressed or self-conscious or whatever the case might be. What does it mean to be like a, a top leader within an organization? I think a top leader is someone who can empower their people, um, can actually learn from their people, um, and admit when they don't know something. Um, can also get that they are human and they're not superhuman, um, and then that they're always not, they're not going to be perfect all the time. Um, and the leaders that I've met who do that, like I will follow all day long. Ones who can admit that they're human and they make mistakes, um, but they're always going to do whatever it takes to improve themselves and get better, um, and that they'll work with you to figure out how to be successful. Um, I think that makes a really great leader. Awesome. Well, Jay, if folks want to get in touch with you on social media or ping you about, you know, picking your brain or getting a gig yeah. at uh, Data Nice, oh, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, they can email me, just jason at datanize.com, or um, they can tweet at me. I'm not as big on Twitter, but I'm trying to get there. It's uh, Jason C, as in Charlie Vargas, uh, is my handle. And um, yeah, those two. Cool. Or, or hit me up on LinkedIn. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. I appreciate it. A lot of people are afraid of sharing their ideas because they're going to be stolen. But the truth is, no one steals ideas. Ideals are, they are not, you know, there is no value to ideas.